This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, you're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast. I'm Patrick Maguire, still in for Matt Chorley this week. We've got, as ever, a great podcast coming up for you today. It's PMQ's Unpacked, before the Lord Mayor's show, as it were. It's the autumn statement, but Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak faced off. So, Tim Shipman and Laura Spirit pause the action for us. That's coming up in just a moment. But first, we speak to two of my very, very favourite columnists, Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson. The Columnists with Ali Burt, Alice Thompson and Robert Crampton yes. on Times Radio. Time for Ali Burt with Alice Thompson. Hi, Alice. Hi. And Robert Crampton, how are you? Good, thank you, Patrick. Yeah, you're right. I'm very well. All the better I thought for... it might be Michael Howard. But I was going to say Michael Howard. Is it Howard. Michael Howard, Anar? No. No, 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 it's not. No. There you go. No. I thought of no. Michael Howard, but he was a lawyer, wasn't he? he wasn't yeah, a doctor. he wasn't a doctor. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Born a... Actually, his dad was Romanian Jew, though, Michael Howard. Oh, I didn't know when his parents came. Mm. I thought maybe his grandparents had no, come No, out, I, yeah. think, uh, maybe, uh, maybe, I think he was born Michael Hecht. I don't know. Anyway, that's enough about Michael Howard's uh, anglicised surname uh, and uh, career at the English bar. We're talking about trains instead, Alice, because of your very traumatising column in this morning's Times. Well, I was OK because I was... Um just coming into work <laughs> and I don't normally take the six o'clock train from Tiverton to London but I have every now and again and um, it used to be completely empty post-pandemic because people weren't coming back into the office now it's packed and the station was packed and the train uh, was cancelled and it's regularly cancelled and the next train wasn't till four minutes to seven so that's an hour later and then that was 38 minutes late and then by the time it got into London it was pretty much two hours late and people were really distraught and you realised that whole way down the line you know all the way from the southwest it hadn't even started in Cornwall they gave up on Cornwall completely mm, wow so everything started from Exeter, you realise that they were just messing up so many people's days so none of the children were getting into school they have to take the trains even though it's only 15-20 minutes along the line then they weren't getting to hospital appointments, people weren't getting to job interviews, and it was really quite traumatising for them. And you think, if Jeremy Hunt's going to get up today and say he wants to get people back working, he's got to find some way of them getting into the office. And at the moment, it's really hard on the trains. It really is. Hull trains, historically quite good, though. Yeah, Hull trains aren't bad. Uh, I've always had good... And the East Coast line in, in general is much better than uh, the West Coast line, and it sounds like it's better than the Southwest. 
as well, although things can go badly wrong. Whenever I, I, I mean, whenever I write about trains, like similar horror stories to Alice, there always gets a huge response. The readers are very on this. They're very angry about it. There's nothing, I mean, people get really upset about it. I'm lucky that I don't have to use it. I use the train probably once a fortnight, you know, to do for, for work and people who have to use the train every day for commutes, you can, mm. can quite understand why they would want to continue working from home. When you go to Hull, do you uh, drive or take the train? We, if I'm going by myself, I take the train. Uh, if I'm with the family, we drive. Nice. Yeah. I'm a really bad driver, so I pretty much always take the train. And yeah. I, I find it amazing how, well, 30% of trains we now know are late, and that's gone up. You know, it's the highest on record now. So if you're trying to get anywhere, you've got a thirty percent chance of not getting there on time. That is quite depressing. Yeah, and, and you and you just sort of build it in now, don't you? You kind of you, you're surprised if things go right rather than if things go wrong. No, yeah, you really are. And yeah. it feels like it's just gone off the cliff, especially post COVID. And Mark Harper, the transport secretary, has sort of taken to saying the government's sort of line is trains are redundant, demand mm. fallen since before the pandemic. But anecdotally. That's never never seems to be the case if you, especially if you're getting a long intercity train. Yeah. Or you're well, not even anecdotally, actually. So Hull yeah. trains are now there are more people travelling on them than there were pre-pandemic. So oh, yeah. they do actually know the stats and they have gone yeah. up. So it's not right to say they've gone down fifty percent. And some lines are actually more. And then you've got the new Elizabeth line, which is crowded the whole time yeah. right mm. now. I mean, it's been incredibly popular. So yeah. I think the, basically Rishi Sunak doesn't like trains. And I was talking mm-hmm. to one of his advisors and he said it goes back to the pandemic because they had to pay for empty trains for so long and he found it really irritating. But he does prefer taking his ministerial car or going by helicopter. Or helicopter, yeah. <laughs> or a jet. Mm. Uh, or, I, I mean, wouldn't we all? But we, that is not, that's an option for very few flew people. To, yeah, if he flew to Blackpool fairly recently. Yeah. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't buy this because whenever I'm you know, on, on a train, uh, they're pretty packed and you can be you see people who's paid 100 quid and haven't got a seat you could pay 100 quid 150 quid to sit outside the loo yeah, on no, the floor exactly. so i don't see uh trains are redundant at all well it's, it's no wonder people fly to edinburgh with the prices mm. are, are, are like that alice another interesting thing you know you raising your column if you have these really unreliable train networks the people who tend to lose out the people at the sharpest end of this are the people who've been pushed out of the cities by rent increases, spiralling house prices, i.e. the young. And they, if they're trying to get into London, then how are you, how are you meant to do that? So when you look at the young stats, it's the fact that none of them drive. So only a quarter of um, 21s and under mm. have got driving licences and uh, only just over a third of the under 30s. And it is because it's incredibly expensive now to get your driving test and difficult and you know, you've got a six-month waiting list. And then they can't afford the insurance on a car, let alone the car. So they're not driving. And you can say, well, let them take a bike. But it is almost impossible on quite a lot of commutes to bike mm. in. So they do end up relying on trains. And then they're seen as really flaky. So we talk about millennials being flaky at work but some of the time they just can't get in do you find uh, mm. do you, do you uh, how do you get to work Robert I get the bus the 388 bus from uh, Hackney to London Bridge where we are now it's pretty very, very reliable every 10 minutes half an hour what about you Alice, much less on Monday and Friday I Thanks. take the central line and then the Jubilee line nice, nice. pretty much works my journey is about half as much takes half as long on a Monday and Friday because everyone's Nobody comes into work on a Monday and Friday, or very few people going to work on a Monday and Friday. Some of us don't have. Some of us don't have the option. Right. Yeah, how do you get in, Patrick? How do I get in? It varies, actually. I uh, I sometimes get the tube from Finsbury Park. If I'm in this building, I get the Thameslink from Finsbury Park, or uh, I often get a line bike uh, from Finsbury Park to Westminster or London Bridge. Cool. Uh, 
Let's but see. London is a lot better off for most cities. That's the problem, is that actually yeah, a lot of the money went in there and the bus routes around the country are really bad. Public transport in London is, is I think, superb, actually, apart from the, the, the tube stops too early. But then you, and you, and you forget living in London. You go to the, uh, well, not even the deep countryside, but just, there's just home counties and people are really, really stuck. Rural bus services, suburban bus services are appalling. They really are. They really yeah. are. Uh, right, let's talk elections, given the Chancellor is basically firing the starting gun on the uh, the Tory election campaign today with his bevy of tax cuts. And in How to Win an Election, our new podcast yesterday, we might have mentioned it, Peter Mandelson, Polly McKenzie and Daniel Finkelstein all spoke about election slogans and what makes a good one. The most brilliant Conservative slogan ever was in 1978-79. Labour isn't working. In three words, you had Britain is broken. You can do something about it by voting these people out. You can vote instead for competence and you'll feel much better about it when you wake up the following morning. We kept on being presented with adverts from our communication team and they would always unveil them with this is the new Labour isn't working. Uh, And some of these adverts, I'm afraid, were really poor. There was an extraordinary one uh, with a picture of Tony Blair and a phone bill and it and the slogan was Tony and Bill it was a play on Tony Blair and Bill Clinton it was completely incomprehensible (laughs) that's how to win an election you can get Mm. that wherever you get your podcast from the ironic thing about Labour isn't working was I think uh, unemployment then stood at slightly slightly less. Well, slightly obviously over went up to three million under Thatcher, and, didn't and it? And it was there's this great queue of jobless, and it's only it was a million, and then within a couple of years it was well over three. Well, the guy mm. the guy who designed that poster died, I think, last year, and there was a brilliant obituary in the Times which revealed how he put it together, which was he got a queue, he had about ten people in a car mm. park, and then photographed them in different positions, yeah, right. got them to change their clothes so it looked like that long snaking doll queue. But it doesn't really matter if it doesn't work does it it's just it's the get brexit done really i mean you think that was another phenomenal slogan yeah take back control mm. take back yes yeah. that sort of you yeah. want it three or four words that sum everything up i mean jeremy corbyn didn't get many things right but for the many not the few in 2017 yeah you know you remember that everybody remembers that and it sort of captured exactly what his whole yeah his whole shtick was about i mean today i mean there's a brilliant quiz on the times website uh, on the write-up of uh of yesterday's podcast. So we thought we'd test your election knowledge. When's it go? When's it date from? When's it date from? Yeah. Well, I'll talk you through. I'll talk you okay. through. See if any of you can match the slogan. Because I can give you a 1974 one if you want. Oh, I mean, that's not on the list, so do, uh, do Brit- as, Britain, a, as a Britain teaser. W- Britain will win with Labour. Very nice. I think, I can't remember if it was February or October. Uh, Two elections in 1974, uh, as you know. Nice. Come on. Uh, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll open the bidding. <laughs> right, 1979. Don't just hope for a better life. Vote for one. Who was that? Tory. Tories, correct. Yeah. Picture of Margaret Thatcher in a pussy bow blouse uh, and, a, and a blue border, and that was uh, that was the um, that was that slogan. At 1983, working together for Britain. Who was that? Uh, Labour. I think maybe Tory again. No, it was Liberals. It was the Liberals. Ooh. It was the Liberals. When was Meet the Challenge, Make the Change? That was uh, that was Kinnett, wasn't it? Was that 83 or 87? That was 87. Yeah. If you listen to this week's podcast, not to plug how to win an election too much, <laughs> but you can hear Peter Mandelson singing along to the uh, accompanying song. Right. You'll never, ever forget it. Uh, yeah, Things Can Only Get Better was a really good one, I have to say. Yeah, that was. was 97, yeah. yeah. That was... 87, yeah. 87. Do you remember this one? The Next Moves Forward. 
That's Tories. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Uh, how about 1992, Changing Britain for Good? I bet that's the Liberals. No, I think that may be Labour. Robert, you're right, it's the Liberals. Yeah. Uh, this, is, this is probably my favourite one. <laughs> 2001, Reach for the Future. Oh, crikey. God, that wasn't Hague, was it? That's, no. No, that sounds a bit liberal as well. I can't, uh, no, actually, it sounds New Labour. It's the Greens. Oh. <laughs> in, clay, in case you, were, you weren't paying really close attention to the 2001 Green campaign, there's a reminder. I the, can, I, can I anticipate the 2005 Tory one? Oh, Are you God thinking what, what we're, we're thinking? thinking? That was exactly... No, mate, exactly no, mate we're not. We're not. That, that was pernicious, actually. That was a really was talk dodgy about, talk slogan. About the dog whistle. Mm. Yeah, it was basically. Well, you know, I think as, as Danny <laughs> says on this week's podcast, he was one of the people in Michael Howard's operation yeah. that said, well, "Maybe think twice about that one," because I think a yeah. lot of people look back and think that's the precursor to. Yeah, I remember being at that very press conference. Effective. It was a really dodgy press just, conference, and yeah. they looked embarrassed, and Michael Howard looked embarrassed. I just remember shouting at the television, "No, mate, I'm not." <laughs> Every time it came on, yeah, go away. But, you know, that was one of Linton Crosby's first UK campaigns. And it was sort of the precursor to a lot of uh, how Tory campaigns sort of evolved. And Yeah, it's, part of, yeah, it's, cross the, it's edging towards kind of unacceptable populism. I mean, yeah, it's, it feels, it sounds pretty mild now, doesn't it? But at the time it was a bit, oh, because it's kind of... Well, also no one had talked that much about immigration. It was definitely no. geared towards immigration. Sure. That was mm. when it began didn't it? The whole yeah, shift was, came on to immigration. Yeah, and, and I remember inter- a... interviewing Michael Howard at, uh, at a big traveller camp in Essex. And that, I think he actually, la- not launched, but he went. He, was, he made a great big thing. There was a famous travel, I can't remember where, where, what was the it name was. Was it Dale was. Farm? Yes. Yeah. Uh, and he went, you know, meeting him there at seven in the morning and it was a big, you know, big deal. And that's, that's you know, you can see where they were going yeah. with that. And Anne Widdicombe took me up in her helicopter and we went round looking. Anne Widdicombe's helicopter? Where the asylum seekers <laughs> were, which was she? quite extraordinary actually. Wow. God, Anne Whittaker Whittic- in a helicopter. Yeah. You used to get all the glamorous gigs, Alice. <laughs> I did, I did. I went to see Michael Howard uh, at his place in Folkestone, which is lovely. Have you been there? It's so lo- absolutely lovely. Yeah, Barry, his wife is lovely as well. And Sandra had laid on, mm. I was going to say, Sandra is absolutely fantastic person, laid on this amazing spread for all the hacks. And I thought, oh, I'll get stuck into that. And I made the mistake of going to the loo. And when I came back, there was Adam Bolton just licking his fingers as the last of the sandwiches <laughs> went, went down the hatch. And I thought, oh, I've learned the lesson today. And he just sort of grinned at me and went, yeah, you've got a lot to learn, son. <laughs> no, no just buffet. No, no just... Down straight down the hatch. Oh, Adam Bolton, Adam Bolton. He could, of course, hear on a Sunday on Times Radio. So there you go. It's not just an anecdote, it's a plug uh, for our output too. Uh, right, don't go anywhere because we're about to talk about Robert's love of Nigel Farage. Oh, no! There you go. Every, every day while Nigel Farage is in the celebrity jungle, Siobhan Sinnott will be keeping us up to date and she joins us now. Hi, Siobhan. Hi there. Uh, last night we saw Nigel Farage reference the time he survived a plane crash on the eve of the 2010 election. Let's have a listen. Nigel, I just saw you doing a bit of a workout over there. Yeah, I have to. Really? Why? Because I've had a neck reconstruction and really? I've smashed everything more than once. God. So if I don't do it, I'll be in terrible state. How did you smash it? A car crash and a plane crash. Plane. A plane wow. crash? Plane crash. Yes. What were you doing at the time, Nigel, when you were flying a plane? Where were you going? Yeah, what? I'm being an idiot. Um, flying a banner. Oh, wow. Well, what was on yeah. the banner? Was it a will you marry me? A Brexit message, obviously. Will you marry me? So I've not been watching 
Siobhan. Mm. I've been relying on I've been relying on you for my updates to you know spare my spare my eyes, especially because yeah, yeah. you know we saw Farage completely naked uh, yesterday or the day before. Yes. Uh, I but- shall never think of an unripe peach in quite the same way. <laughs> <laughs> and is he is he pumping iron in the in the camp every day? Is that what we're seeing? He's doing a little bit of a, a workout involving some, some twigs above his le- above his head. Yes, that's probably what it is. It's probably much more challenging than I think it is. Uh, interestingly, in this uh, last night's episode, focus shifting slightly from Nigel Farage. He wasn't eligible for the trial, which is why he was explaining to uh, the, the campmates about about his injury in the plane crash uh, when he was electioneering. Uh, there are certain physical trials that, that he's, he's not able to do. And he was quite unhappy about that because bugs or no bugs, um, bush tucker duty means that you're the focus of the audience's attention. And on, on the uh, in a conversation with Grace Dent, the food journalist, he was saying, if you do the challenges it's 25% of the airtime um, and I'm looking at reaching a whole audience it sounds cynical but you know yes we do know Nigel I think it does sound cynical um, but also the shift has been focusing because Jamie Lynn Spears uh, Britney's sister has been crying a lot oh. and uh, Nella Rose the YouTuber has fallen out with Fred over something completely inconsequential and based on a massive misunderstanding <laughs> this has been enough to draw fire from Nigel Farage uh, for the moment, and he's not terribly happy about it. Well, Robbie, you've been watching our celebrity a you little wrote, bit. Well, you wrote this week. You're actually on Team Farage. I didn't, use the, I didn't use the phrase Team Farage. I uh, it's long been uh, a peculiarity to me that me and Nigel Farage were born in the same year because he t- he feels to me he's four months older than me, 1964, and it and I look at him and I just think, am I that old, really? Uh, but that kind of came back to haunt me because I found myself identifying with him largely on age grounds uh, from, the, this, from the first episode. What, sort of the generational gap between him and the YouTubers? Yes, because he's in there with a bunch of, of people half his age uh, who don't know much about politics, uh, who haven't seemed to have achieved a great deal in their lives. Uh, Is that like you walking around London Fields with uh, all the hip young kids? Well, maybe a little bit. <laughs> and anyway, I thought he was quite... Uh, he took a sort of paternal kind of dad role, didn't mm. he, on that first one where he kind of, you know, mm. he drives the car and he says, well, this is what we're going to do and it's not going to be that bad, let's just kind of crack on. And I mm. kind of identified with that because I guess that's what you do do if you're a 59-year-old man and you're stuck with a bunch of 25-year-olds. That's kind of what, mm-hmm. that's kind of what you do. It's just, it's just nature's way. And so I thought, yeah, I, he's... I mean, I do not like Nigel Farage's politics. I mean, quite aside from the content, I don't like the way he... I think he was the shockingly unmagnanimous winner of the 2016 referendum. So what you're uh, saying is that... He managed to rub You don't like Elton John. You don't like pickles. Yeah, I'm just getting... You don't like strawberry jam, but you, you do, do like Nigel yeah, Farage. I, and now that is... I think that's probably a drawing a line I'm for me. I'm becoming... Uh, i just get introduced on this programme on a weekly basis. First of all, I said some quite <laughs> innocent things about Elton John. Glastonbury, actually, got slammed for that. Then the Northern Lights, strawberry jam, picnics. And then and he chooses I'm, Nigel I'm, Farage I, to come back. I, yeah, and now, I'm, and now I'm getting lumped with Nigel Farage. Maybe it's just... I don't know, maybe it's just mm. age. You mm. know, you just get... So I agree with the column apart from that bit when you said that you felt sorry for Nigel Farage being kicked out of Coots Bank and you thought... I didn't say I felt sorry for him. I said it was a disgrace what happened because the chief executive went and just broke every the first law of being a banker. But you didn't say that, but you just said getting yeah. out of the bank. And I actually think he could have gone to NatWest because the rest of us all belong to normal banks. So what's yeah. the problem with actually going to NatWest? It's bet, not a 
bad bank. It's just well, he wanted Kurt, to be with a posh bank, and actually he I didn't bet have Kurt money to have him do back it. now. He's got well, a million dollars. Given <laughs> given he's been paid that much, but is, yeah. is, Siobhan, is it a good return on investment? Is it? Uh, you know how are the how are the audience figures? Because wasn't yeah. there a two million dip earlier in the week? You know, yes. is it, and obviously you can't draw a straight line between Farage being on and the numbers falling. But you know, is this series sort of not capturing the imagination? I know we're, we're talking about it right now, but not yeah capturing no, the public imagination in the way it used to. I don't. I think you know. Besides Nigel Farage, who else have you got? It's mm. a veritable who's that uh, in the celebrity lineup terms. There's no Boy George. There's no Jill Scott. Yeah. Um, and I think that's just not. Uh, it's not really getting in the, the viewers. <laughs> Understandably so. Um, but it does mean that perhaps with a lack of somebody with a big social media following, Nigel could go quite far. Yeah. Uh, there's a story in the Mirror saying the team around Nigel Farage are hoping to uh, arrange a, a voting plan that's already won him. A trick award for a news presenter of the year um, through an audience yeah. vote. So you know uh, he he might I might have to be talking about this for a few weeks to come. We have to remember that Nigel Farage is an extremely skilled politician. He took an issue mm. that was a complete fringe uh, basket case twenty five thirty years ago, and he and he got his way. You could say. Tony Blair's better at winning elections, but you could, other than that, you In could terms say of consequential politician. You could say he's the most successful consequential politician mm. of the of, of the last quarter century. No, definitely. definitely. So, no, I mean, it doesn't surprise me in the slightest that he's got a plan and he knows about how airtime and all that. It doesn't surprise me at what all. What worries me is what he wants to do next with it. So, if he does mm. win and then he is more popular again, what he's actually yeah. campaigning for now? Yeah, nobody knows. That's really interesting. Is he, is well, he trying to transition to light mm. entertainment and make? serious money or is he thinking mm. this will reintroduce me to the electorate or and reintroduce me yeah. to a new electorate and quite a lot of the Tory party actually want him in the Tory party now well yeah there's the talk that you know that he's the next Tory leader but one or something yeah I read that Siobhan Sounds final thought possible. from you well, I mean, he could be advertising outdoor showers if, um, <laughs> if things go really well for him. Or, as um, you say, bags of unripe peaches. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, no, he's, uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's slightly sidelined. I'm not sure how he's going to grab the, 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 the limelight back um, from these um, bust-ups in camp. But uh, tune in tonight. Or don't. Listen tomorrow. <laughs> Listen to this instead. Out. That was Robert Crampton and Alice Thompson there. Remember, you can read them both in The Times every week. Just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash timesredbox to get yourself a digital subscription. Or, if you're a young fogey like me, go and get a copy of the paper. Up next, it's PMQ's Unpacked. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Times Red Box podcast. Now it's time for this. PMQs unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Patrick Maguire and Tim Shipman. And Laura Spirit too. Woo! We've we've <laughs> not yet got the Speaker of the House to make time out of his busy schedule to record yet another jingle. But he will. He will. I'm sure he will. Uh, how are you both, Tim? How are you? Very excited. Big day in politics. It's a massive day in politics. Is this the beginning of, I mean, the election campaign's already begun, but is this the beginning of the election campaign in earnest? I mean... Yes, <laughs> but it's already begun. No, I mean, look, they've the the Tories have had several opportunities to change the narrative and um, have not so far succeeded in doing so. And this is the last obvious one before you get into New Year relaunches. We've had a reshuffle. We've had a King's speech. We've had a party conference speech. None of them have moved the dial. Um, they've got a little bit more money to play with than they thought a month ago, and they're now going to try and. Um, you know, cut tax a bit and give people some hope and expectation. And um, before all that, Starmer gets a go at Sunak, which he won't. He won't get a go at the Chancellor later. It's the leader of the opposition who sponsor a budget, but we will get the shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves today. So this is Starmer's opportunity to do some economy if he wants to and get himself on the evening news. Do you think he wants to do some economy, Laura Spirit? Um, I don't understand that he will do some economy in Prime Minister's questions. I think he's more likely to go for something a bit left field, uh, given that this is uh, the kind of one of those pre-budget PMQs where you have an opportunity and a bit more leeway to do something uh, a bit less news, kind of dependent on the news that day. Um, so that'd be interesting to see what he chooses and how. Sunak he also needs to, to make that. up for last week, which was um, a, a pretty much a Horlicks from Keir Starmer with a lot of open goals. Um, you know, Rishi Sunak's year as Prime Minister passed without a great deal of Mickey taking and, you know, kind of running the rule over his uh, regime so far. And you wonder whether Starmer might sort of try and revisit a bit of that and um, kind of put the context of the, you know, of the autumn statement into a sort of wider state of politics kind of questioning. Well, if you're watching along on the Times Radio YouTube channel, do tell us what you think Keir Starmer should be asking. Hello to all of you. Hello to Terry B., listening to Eccles, from Eccles, by the Manchester Ship Canal. Uh, thank you to Johnny Seven for listening in Maida Vale, David Hill in Banbridgeshire, Martin O'D in Unsunny Norfolk. God, you know, the first one we got was upstate New York and it's been downhill from there. <laughs> Apologies to the good people of, uh, uh, of Norfolk. Uh, Tim, do you think Labour are going to struggle over the course of today to respond to a Tory party that now has money to play with? Well, look, they've been so far arguing over, you know, um, where you spend a very small pie. Um, maybe it gives Labour a little bit of leeway to have an argument about whether the Tories have made the right sort of choices, but cutting national insurance is reasonably uh, popular and is the kind of thing that you can imagine a, uh, a Labour Party doing as well. So um, I'm not sure there's a lot of kind of um, obvious political ground to be gained by opposing what uh, what Jeremy Hunt's going to announce. Just to uh, update you both on our lobby colleagues back in the House of Commons press gallery, there's been a power cut at the worst possible time, or the best possible time, if you're not a massive fan of political journalism. Every journalist in the House of Commons has been hit by a power cut. Uh, so there you go. If uh, if the uh, 
quality of uh, budget analysis you read today is a bit uh, a bit more uh, a bit sharper. That's why. Uh, right, let's head to the Commons Chamber for Rishi Sunak's first question. You're listening to PMQs on Pat here on Times Radio. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Like the Prime Minister, I know the whole House will welcome the agreement reached overnight. We repeat our calls for Hamas to release all hostages immediately. This humanitarian pause must be used to get the hostages out safely, to tackle the urgent and unacceptable humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza, and to make progress to a full cessation of hostilities. Mr Speaker, in recent years, the international community has treated the two-state solution as a slogan rather than a serious strategy, and that must now change. Like the Prime Minister, I also I'm sure I speak for everyone in the House in saying our hearts go out to the families and friends of the four young men from Shrewsbury who tragically lost their lives this week. It's a living nightmare for any parent, and I can hardly begin to imagine their loss. Mr. Speak, Mr. Speaker, this week the Prime Minister unveiled the latest version of his five pledges for the country. Let's hope he has more success with these than the last ones. Did he forget the NHS? Prime Minister. Well, Mr. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, not only when I became Prime Minister, just weeks after becoming Prime Minister, we injected record funding into the NHS and in social care. We also unveiled the first ever long-term workforce plan in the NHS's 75-year history. But I'm pleased he mentioned the five pledges because, as he knows, three of them are economic. And on a day which we will focus on the economy, I'm pleased to report that we have indeed halved inflation. No thanks to the party opposite. We have indeed grown the economy and we have indeed reduced debt. That's a Conservative government delivering for this country. Interesting question from Keir Starmer and indeed interesting opening remarks leading into his difficulties on Gaza, seeking to basically sort of own the truce that's been agreed, the humanitarian pause he's been causing for, calling for, and then a very pointed question about the NHS. Yeah, I mean, Starmer's been slightly fortunate having had this long-running row that we've now finally got sort of um, a hostage exchange and, and, and a pause. You sort of wonder whether... He might, he might have said, you know, we use this pause for important political <laughs> reasons and to stop having a go at me. Uh, might have been how he put it. But, yeah, I mean, I, I find it slightly curious that Sunak's announced five new pledges and has blatantly dropped two of the ones that he didn't hit from the first round. You know, um, yes, they put lots of money into the NHS, um, um, and I think, you know, everyone would recognise that the NHS keeps hoovering up money and hasn't necessarily reformed. But... Um, you know they've got more money, um, and they've done this workforce plan, which we're going to hear endless amounts about up to the general election. You know, long-term planning and all that kind of stuff. I'm surprised we didn't hear that phrase uh, from Sunak. But you know, they've failed to deliver on um, uh, tackling uh, the huge backlog of uh, of, of operations that uh, have not taken place um, and the waiting lists. Um, I think there have been some improvements in some of the the short-term waiting, but it's it's been a you know, it's still a, a running sore in Whitehall. And obviously, one that he'll probably get around to talking about in the next question is, did you forget to stop the boats as well? Um, and we've got immigration figures coming tomorrow, um, and my sources in government say that whatever political gains the Tory party might get out of 
today's autumn statement are likely to be washed away um, big style with the immigration figures tomorrow. So um, if Starmer pushes on that now, I think he's, you know, building a kind of context for a week that's going to be quite difficult for the government. It is striking, Lara, isn't it, that Rishi Sunak's new five priorities, are we now just pretending that he didn't make the, 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 the previous five? Um, I mean, some people, yeah, honestly, probably will. It was interesting listening to uh, Laura Trott, one of the newest members uh, of uh, Rishi Sunak's cabinet after the reshuffle, of course, in the Treasury, put on the spot on Times Radio earlier this week on the morning broadcast round and asked uh, just after they'd been announced to name all five of them and was clearly palpably relieved uh, at being able to actually recall them accurately. And I did feel actually almost quite bad for, for being asked for them because uh, they are they, they are very many a number. They are becoming quite uh, difficult to recall just on the uh, immigration figures tomorrow I think it'll be interesting to see um, from the OBR's outlook uh, how they have factored in growth on account of migration Neil O'Brien who of course stood down in that uh, reshuffle uh, formerly uh, a minister uh, he this morning uh, raising concerns about the OBR uh, kind of having too optimistic forecasts for the contribution that migration makes to uh, growth that is a very very live debate in the Conservative Party and I think that will be a very interesting one uh, to watch today It certainly will be certainly will be Kirstama mentioned the uh, forthcoming pause in hostilities in Gaza just then. Breaking news just uh, out now. Uh, it's going to uh, begin at 8am tomorrow, uh, the uh, the pause in fighting uh, in Gaza. Right, let's hear Rishi Sunak's response to Keir Starmer's second question now. Well, the reason he ignored the NHS, not only in his new pledges, but just now is because 7.8 million people are currently on the waiting lists. That's half a million more than when he pledged to bring them down nearly a year ago. The Prime Minister just claimed that this is all about economic growth. So let me ask him, if a labourer or a care worker is forced to wait a year for an operation, how are they meant to help grow the economy? Mr Speaker, we're doing an enormous amount to bring waiting lists down. Enormous amount. Expanding patient choice, rolling out new community diagnostic centres, new surgical hubs, as well as putting more doctors and nurses in our ward. But I guess the question, Mr Speaker, is when he talks about targets and waiting lists, I really just hope that the Welsh Labour government aren't listening. After 25 years in power, they're missing every single one of his targets. Weren't they meant to be his blueprint? It's really interesting, that, isn't it? Chorley would bang his bell at that point. Yeah, I he think would. It's fair to He's say. taking it with him on the cruise, so alas, <laughs> I, don't, alas, I, don't ha- alas I don't have it. But yeah, that was a, on a familiar theme. Yes, it's a familiar theme, and you know, uh, it's perfectly legitimate familiar theme as well. Um, and Starmer did sort of mistakenly talk about um, uh, Welsh Labour being his model, um, which, uh, in healthcare at least, is a problem. Um, uh, and it's one, but it's one that people listening in will be sort of sighing into their uh, their sofas uh, to have heard once more. Um, but it's it's sort of interesting. This, I mean. Uh, I thought the way Starmer asked the question in terms of trying to frame it in terms of growth was kind of interesting. It sort of means that Lara was definitely right and I was a bit right in what we were predicting at the top, which is that he's trying to sort of economise a debate about the, about the health service. And it's, you know, it's a reasonable point that if everyone's sitting at home with a, a gammy leg and can't get the operation they need, they're not going to be out um, uh, carrying bricks around for a living. Exactly. And, and Laura, it allows Labour to talk about the same issue that the government is talking about, i.e., 
the chronically ill and disabled people who are not in work without necessarily getting drawn into a conversation, sort of reframing the same conversation that the government wants to have about benefits and, and welfare. Yeah, I, I think Tim was right and I was wrong in my predictions. I think you're being generous, uh, Tim. But it's interesting, um, I was talking to somebody yesterday uh, from Starmer's team and they were saying that Rishi follows this real blueprint, which is the right way to do it uh, in their mind, whereby he's asked a question, uh, he will make cursory mention of the specifics of it. He'll go to the section of his book, in this case, you know, the big section of the folder that says NHS. He'll reel off some facts and achievements and then he'll do one final jibe and attack line. And when it comes to the NHS, the only attack line that he seems to use is Wales. That is that is the common... I mean, can you think of another way that he signed off these NHS... Not really, no. And, attack and lines. It's basically all they've got, but, you know, equally on the other foot, you know, uh, if Labour have been in power for a year, we'll see how, they, how well they've got on, um, you know, with not a lot of money to hand. Um, I think there's a danger for Sunak. While I think that point is legitimate and reasonable... The way he does it, as you just explained, it was a bit glib the way it just sort of... he You could sense the relief in his voice that it's like, I can now get to my sort of... Uh, my hoary old partisan attack line. Uh, right, well, now it's time for another. Let's go back to the comments for Rishi Sunak's third answer and Keir Starmer's third question. Remember, we're live on the Times Radio YouTube channel. Do tune in if you want to see uh, me, Tim and Lara live. Uh, I, I promise you it's worth it. And, you, of course, you can see all the action in the House of Commons too. Uh, but let's head there for Keir Starmer's third question. Mr Speaker, more than double the entire population of Wales are currently on a waiting list in England. Yeah. Yeah. He really needs to take some responsibility. Yeah. And on his watch, 2.5 million people are too sick to work, with the majority also suffering from mental health issues. Yeah on top of his failures on waiting lists. Can he tell us how many people are waiting for mental health treatment? Mr Speaker, we've injected record sums to expand the number of mental health treatments in our country. But, Mr Speaker, I I talked about the practical things that we are doing with CDCs and surgical hubs. But he doesn't also seem to realise that the union action that he fails to condemn and that his members of parliament support from the picket lines have led to several hundred thousand cancelled appointments, all making waiting lists worse. And he asked about Wales, but we can look at it. In Wales, over 70,000 people are waiting over 18 months for treatment, compared to in England, where, thanks to our efforts, we have virtually eliminated 18 months' wait. And that's the difference between us, Mr Speaker. He wants to play politics. We get things done. Very interesting that you should bring up the unions there, Tim. Yeah, I mean, again, it's 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 kind of um, uh, home terrain for for Sunak, um, and I think you know, I mean, if you talk to people in in government, they do genuinely say that the problem uh, they would have made a lot further progress had they not been having sort of uh, problematic strikes and certainly the one that the consultants led um, in the week of the Conservative Party conference made them extremely angry. Um, You know, and I think, again, I can understand their frustration. Um, They're desperately trying to tackle this and they're desperately trying to make make progress on what is an important metric for the country. Um, It's sort of slightly uh, bizarre that they... If they were doing well on long term, I, I said short term weights earlier, and I meant long term weights. Um, you know, they've brought down the number of people on on the long term 
I wonder whether he might have been better with his second batch of targets to have put something sort of vaguely achievable in terms of that, mm. still aspirational, but was still was was achievable rather than ignoring it altogether and giving Labour an opening to just say they don't care about the NHS again. It's very interesting as well, Laura, to hear Keir Starmer turn Wales to his advantage in the context of a health debate. Yeah, because I suppose he's had uh, ample indications that this would come up uh, via Rishi Sunak as an attack line, so I think it would be foolish for them not to have a response uh, on Wales, and that was a, an interesting one, I'd I think. I'd fact-check the population of Wales, just to be <laughs> sure as well. I thought it was about 4 million, and I thought it might be touch and go. Actually, it's only 3.28 million, so Starmer is bang on with that Hey, we'll uh, make a response. journalist of him next, given the size of Wales is the very, uh, the very bedroom rock of journalese isn't it so there you go i think it's interesting just quickly on the 18 month wait time the waiting more than 18 months because the government was understood to have quietly dropped that target because it was ticking up again so for issue to say that those had been eliminated i think was an so interesting suggest one. does it suggest maybe that the numbers are uh, not flashing red quite as uh, quite as fiercely Who also knows? quite bold to have a go at starmer for making political point scoring <laughs> you know i mean this is you know it's a, it's a bit like that scene in doctor strange love isn't it where they go you can't fight in here it's the war room you know this is this is pmqs <laughs> You know, Prime Minister. I think, I think there might be the odd political point flying around. Uh, and here's another. Let's head back to the Commons Chamber for Rishi Sunak's next answer. So raising the waiting list by half a million is getting things done. It's through the looking glass, this one. I asked the Prime Minister how many people are waiting for mental health treatment. He knows the answer, he just doesn't want to give it. 1.2 million. 200,000 are children, some waiting nearly two years to be seen. Would the Prime Minister accept those kind of delays if it were one of his family or friends? Prime Minister. Well, Mr Speaker, one of the key things we are doing to bring down waiting lists is to expand the access of patient choice. It's a very straightforward idea to make sure that patients can choose where they get treated and that way we will bring down waiting lists for mental health and other treatments far faster. Now, the Labour Party's policy on this is a total and utter mess. First, he promised, in his words, to ban NHS use of the independent sector. Then he said he wants more use of the independent sector. His shadow health secretary agreed with that, but then the deputy leader said that she would end it. As ever, you simply don't know what they stand for and you can't trust a word they say. Prime Minister's clearly feeling a bit lively today, Tim. Well, and also, I think, getting his defence in first, because the natural place that Starmer would go next is, uh, Prime Minister, don't you and your family uh, use private health care? Indeed, indeed. So he's straight in there with um, Labour's policy on using, um, uh, you know, independent beds and all the rest of it. Um, and clearly, West Streeting takes a different view from Angela Rayner on that matter. And I think, you know, the, the way he responded there, it does talk to something that, you know, voters who were paying a bit of attention at the moment um, do wonder, you know, they kind of, a lot of them are pretty sick of the government, a lot of them sort of think Labour looks all right, but there's a lot of people who don't really know what Labour would actually do. And the more you get, you know, West Streeting and Angela Rayner disagreeing on an issue like this, uh, it's not entirely clear what they would do. And that, you know, that that is something that the Tories will play with over the next year or so. Yeah, yeah. that is the very divide Labour people... Maybe after, maybe you know, on the second pint, when the uh, the guard slips, that's the sort of that's the sort of language they start using. Uh, Wes versus Angela versus uh, versus Rachel in the next the, the dynamic in the next government. Uh, Laura, what did you make of that exchange? Um, I thought it was very 
interesting. Um, specifically, I think that on uh, mental health as an issue, it was an interesting example of when you choose something a bit more left field, it does become more difficult for Rishi Sunak to give a detailed response on it. You didn't really hear any reference to mental health that was particularly specific uh, to that question in that answer. There was, you know, cursory mention of patient choice and then, as Tim says, a very strategic choice to talk about uh, that key divide within some of those uh, in the shadow cabinet. But uh, mental health is an interesting one. I mean, for young people, I remember the Times running a poll on this showing that it was more important to young people than climate was as an issue. Like, it is a very important issue. We very seldom hear it mentioned uh, in Prime Minister's questions. It's a good example, I think, of when you can use these sessions before a budget to choose something that might seem a little bit uh, a little bit esoteric, perhaps, uh, on a usual PMQs. Right, time for Keir Starmer's penultimate question to Rishi Sunak. As ever, no responsibility for the shocking state of the NHS. The truth is the Prime Minister would not accept those weights for his family, and neither should anyone else. This morning I spoke to an NHS nurse. For many months... For many months, Cam struggled to find time to to see her 14-year-old son, Mikey, until he became seriously unwell. And now he hasn't been able to be in mainstream education for over a year. Mikey's mum is having to balance nursing with caring and being a parent. And this isn't a one-off. There are families up and down the country in exactly the same situation, working hard, trying to get through the cost-of-living crisis whilst desperately worried about relatives who can't get the treatment they need. How does he think they feel when they see the Prime Minister refusing to take responsibility and boasting that everything is fine? Mr Speaker, we're doing absolutely everything we can to put money into the NHS to bring down the waiting list, because I do want families up and down the country to have access to the health care that they need. He's absolutely right. They do deserve it. But then it is incredibly galling, Mr Speaker, to hear this from someone who, when there are strikes happening in our hospitals and people are being denied access to emergency medical care, not only only does he not have the strength to condemn it, He refuses to back legislation that would guarantee all the families that he talked about that access. He's fond of this strike line, isn't he? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, look, for people he's trying to appeal to, that is probably an effective line. Um, But I think um, the way Starmer asked that question was also quite telling. I mean, you know, uh, I'm sure it's a real case. It sounds heartrending. But the point of that, is not the case. The point of it is to sound like you care. And good politicians are very good at emoting about healthcare. You think of, you know, uh, some botched moments in previous leadership debates where Theresa May was unable to emote about nurses. Mm-hmm. Um, I think of Bill Clinton walking down to the front of a stage and grabbing someone by the hand and looking them in the eye and saying, I feel your pain, essentially. And that's what Starmer's trying to do there. You know, and he asks, you know, you ask Sunak a question about how he feels and and how other people feel, and he responds with, well, we're spending as much money as we can. And that, I think, is almost a trap. He kind of knows that's how Sunak will respond. Um, and clearly this is only going to have an impact if people pay a great deal of attention or listening to PMQs unpacked. But I think that general sense that Sunak is not very good at understanding what other people are going through and... Um, is all too prone just to respond with facts and figures. I think um, 
I think that is a sort of revealing question, even if it's not a kind of significant one in a sense. Right, let's hear Keir Starmer's final question to Rishi Sunak. This is on his watch. It's his responsibility. 13, 13 years in, and all he's got to offer is trying to blame the opposition for his failures. Over and over again. Mikey's mum, Mikey's mum. I'll tell you what Mikey's mum said to me this morning, shall I, if you're so interested to hear. She said, she said, and I'm going to quote her, she said, whatever spin the government puts on it, you can't hide the reality for ordinary working people. That's her words. Worth reflecting on. Now, I'm glad that in recent years, real progress has been made in tackling the stigma surrounding mental health. But the fact remains that the suicide rate for 15 to 19-year-olds has doubled since 2010, and suicide is now the biggest killer of men under 45. And they're not just statistics. Every single one is a tragic loss to families and to friends. Politics has the ability to turn this around. It means tough choices. If we were to scrap tax loopholes, we could have thousands more staff, more support in our schools, more support in our communities. That would allow us to treat patients on time, getting them back to work, back to their families, and, crucially, giving them their lives back. This is about mental health. That's Labour's plan. Will he back it? Well, Mr Speaker, it was this government that, for the first time in the NHS's history, ensured that it had a long-term workforce plan, providing it with record funding so that we can eliminate long waits, but also ensuring that it has the money that it needs to train record numbers of doctors and nurses, whilst radically reforming how they work to improve productivity, because the only way we will get everyone the treatment that they need is to make sure that the NHS has a fantastic staff that it needs, and it's this government that has put that in place. And we can look, because he talks about records, Mr Speaker, because this is something that no government has done in the past. It's something I'm proud we've done. Labour's record on this issue is clear. It was a disastrous failure of workforce planning. And those weren't my words, Mr Speaker. Those were the verdict of the Labour-chaired Health Select Committee. It was Labour that did not train the consultants that we would need now, that take 13, 14, 15 or years to train. And it's this government that is for the first time making sure that every family will finally have the doctors and nurses that they need. Let's reflect on what we've just heard. Laurie, your take on uh, today's PMQs? Um, I think on that specific question of mental health and the NHS, it's difficult for Rishi Sunak, for reasons that we've talked about, to go solely on the attack on uh, Labour-run Wales. Uh, I think it's equally difficult, actually, to go on strikes also in a situation where, I mean, Rishi Sunak saying there, uh, the strikes are among the most important reasons why people aren't getting treatment. Now, the strikes have certainly made it more difficult, but uh, if they are, as the mood music seems to suggest, closer to reaching, under Victoria Atkins, the new health secretary, a deal with consultants, uh, albeit not with uh, junior doctors, that seems pretty uh, intractable. Are they then saying that, uh, you know, those uh, seven or eight million people on waiting lists are going to be seen soon after? Obviously, that's not the case. Uh, And so if those strikes are to, if there's some sort of landing zone whereby you reach some sort of resolution on those, uh, that attack line uh, is is going to be somewhat redundant uh, come future PMQ sessions. That's all we got time for on today's Redbox podcast. Remember to like, share, subscribe and follow wherever you get your podcast from. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.